0: Good morning once again. And certainly hoping that, again, as states in this state open up more and more and with everything going on, hoping that it's getting closer to us being able to have worship that's what we know and love. I do hope you're doing well today. I also just want to give a reminder that, in the time being, before it's fully open for churches to have worship, we have started doing some temporary small groups and would love to have you participate. Um, so we're going to do these every week until the time that we can meet in person, and I'm certainly willing to have us do as many as we need to do to accommodate everyone who would like to participate. The text this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter five. After a couple of pretty heavy theological passages over the last couple of weeks, I feel like this one's somewhat short and sweet, uh, but but a great passage from God's word. And so excited to share that with you this morning. So John chapter 5, verses 30 through about the middle of verse 37. Um, We we end in, in the middle of a verse there, and we'll pick up where we left off next week. But John chapter 5, beginning in verse 30, says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light." But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Our Heavenly Father, on this Memorial Day weekend, we thank you for those who have given their lives for the freedoms and liberties that we have Especially for the freedom that we're given to worship you and follow you, a freedom which is sadly unknown and under threat in many parts of the world. Lord, we also today would like to pray for our high school seniors who are graduating. Lord, they've all had such an unpredictable senior year. We praise you for the accomplishments they've made and pray for this next step in their lives. And Lord, I I want to especially pray for Ethan Hall from our church, Lord, as he's finished up high school this year. And, Lord, I want to just rejoice with him and his family. Lord, your word instructs us to pray for our leaders. We pray for our mayor, Chad, and the role that he has in helping to lead our community. We pray for Governor Pritzker and the difficult decisions that he has. Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray for the health of our communities and of the people throughout our state. Lord, we also pray for our President Trump in these trying times. We pray for him and the rest of his team who are helping to guide and direct our nation. Lord, we pray that our governor and governors around this nation would recognize that our spiritual needs are just as significant as our physical needs. Lord, we do pray soon that we will be able to meet in person. Lord, we pray for revival in our nation. We pray that As tough as this time has been for each of us, we've had our own struggles in this situation, but we pray that you would use it to strengthen and mature us in our faith. We pray that you would use it to bring people in our community and all around our nation and world to you, Lord. Lord, we pray for our time in your word today. We thank you for this book that we're studying and for what it teaches us about your son and pointing us to the life and light which comes from him alone. May that be our eternal joy and praise. In Jesus' name, Amen. I've mentioned this before, but throughout history, many people have claimed to be Jesus. Many people have claimed to be the Messiah. Many people have claimed to be the divine or the Son of God who has returned to the world. Some of these people even attract followers. In the Philippines, there's a man named Apollo Killaby who has millions of followers online in his his country, around the world. He leads a large church where he claims that God has revealed to him that he is the Messiah. He lives in a palatial estate surrounded by people who are impoverished. In Brazil, there's a man named Henri Christou who has a cult of about 5,000 people mostly women. He claims also to be Jesus. In England, you have a former British intelligence officer named David Shaler, who says that God revealed to him that he is the Christ in 2007. At times, he's been homeless. At times, he's identified as a woman. In John chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. With what Jesus said, Christians would agree and affirm that. Jesus is the eternal God who lived and died and rose. He speaks with authority and truth. He lived a perfect and righteous life. However, in our passage this morning from John chapter 5, Jesus will show that there are other corroborators who also bear witness to his messianic identity besides only his own claims. As we begin, just a reminder that in John chapter 5, Jesus has been giving a long speech to the Pharisees where he's so far talked about his relationship with the Father. Jesus can do the things that only God does because he is God. We've talked about Jesus' role in judgment. And so we come to verse 31, and Jesus is talking about judgment, but he's also transitioning his speech forward to the next topic. Again, the corroborating witnesses to affirm his deity, that he is the Christ. And this passage will tell us of three witnesses. Verse 30, Jesus is continuing to talk of his relationship to the Father, and that'll be relevant as we consider his claims. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Being sent by God. This is certainly reiterating some of the ideas that we've already talked about in John chapter 5. During his earthly ministry, we see the submission of the Son to the Father. Jesus seeks God's will. And that will lead us into verse 31, where Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Witnesses and testimony. Jesus is making a legal reference to the law of the Old Testament. And in the law, multiple witnesses were demanded. Deuteronomy 31.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Something to keep in mind. It's not that the witnesses to Christ make his claims true. His claims are already true. True. Everything that Jesus says is true. But what the witnesses do is provide attestation to his identity and claims. And as we will see in this passage, ultimately, it is God himself who affirms the identity, identity of who Jesus is. However, in our section, that's not where Jesus begins. That's what Jesus alludes to in verse 32 when he says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And so, what we're going to do with our time this morning, as I mentioned, is look at three witnesses who point us to Christ. And the first witness we'll see is John the Baptist. Verse 33, Jesus says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Jesus reminds the Pharisees that they themselves had sent people to vet John the Baptist, which is recorded in the opening chapter of this gospel. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, John the Baptist is asked about his identity. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ." And then as that section continues, they finally ask him who he is, and John the Baptist responds in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Referencing the book of Isaiah, all four Gospels have John the Baptist entering the story prior to the ministry of Christ as the messenger who was to go out into the world before Christ and to prepare the world for the coming Messiah. The book of Malachi also concludes with a prophecy of a figure who will be the forerunner to the Messiah. Between the Old Testament and the time of Christ, four centuries had come and gone. And then before Jesus, you have a man who comes and says that he's not the Christ, but that he's come to point people to the Christ. Again, our world has a lot of people who have claimed to be the Messiah. But we don't have a lot of people who have claimed to be John the Baptist. I'm not aware of any. John was imprisoned, later executed. He paid the ultimate price for his claims. His purpose in the world was to point people to Christ. In chapter 1, verse 7, it says, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. So Jesus begins with a witness to his messianic identity, with whom the Pharisees... We're already familiar. And while it matters that John the Baptist is the witness, Jesus won't stop there. Verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Interesting that while John is an important witness, he's a prophet, he's biblically significant, Jesus says that he does not receive his testimony from man. That is not so much to diminish John, but to elevate that it is God who is the true witness to Jesus. John's witness could, in fact, be edifying for the Pharisees. For some of Jesus' earliest disciples, it was the testimony of John the Baptist about Jesus, which helped point them to Jesus. John chapter one, verses 35 to 37. John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. So two of Jesus' disciples had formerly, formerly, been disciples of John the Baptist. But he was all too happy to have them leave him to follow Jesus. Back in our section John 5:35, Jesus continues to talk about John the Baptist. He was a burning and shining lamp. And we were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus compares John to a lamp. The point is that a lamp needs a source of light and that the lamp is not light unto itself. That Jesus himself is the true light. and That John was the lamp who shined his light. As John chapter 1 verse 8 tells us, again speaking of John the Baptist, he was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. He points out that the people had rejoiced. Jesus says that the people had rejoiced in John's light. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. D.A. Carson points out that in the New Testament, as well as in the works of the first century historian Josephus, there was excitement in the ministry of John the Baptist. He had come into the world to point people to the Messiah. But when it was Jesus to whom John was pointing people, for various reasons, his teachings his rebukes of legalism and of the Pharisees, his claims of deity, his interactions with sinners, his practices on the Sabbath, that he wasn't a military leader, that some felt the Romans would intervene and take away Israel's rights, and on and on, people did not like Jesus. They liked John as a witness. They liked John as a lamp until they saw the light to whom John was pointing. In his commentary on John, Richard Phillips points out that our world is often just as fickle. Many of the Pharisees initially received the message that John came to preach. They started off by basking in his light. But again, when they saw the true light and discovered it wasn't what they wanted, they plotted against that light. They betrayed him. They shouted crucified to him. John came to point people to the Messiah, to point people to the true light, to point people to eternal life. He came to point people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But the truth, the truth wasn't what the Pharisees wanted. And so they turned away from John. And more importantly, They disregarded Christ. This is why he points out to the Pharisees, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. in being a follower of Jesus, that means that we sometimes hear truths that we don't want or don't want to believe or which challenge us or which challenge how we live or which challenge the decisions we make or which challenge how we think. But instead of disregarding those, we are instead to look to Christ, to trust him, to walk with him. John the Baptist is the first human witness to Christ. The fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the forerunner to the Messiah. And that brings us to our second witness to Christ. Jesus' works testify to him. His works are a witness to his messianic identity. Verse 36 But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus begins by saying that the testimony of, of his works is greater than the testimony of John the Baptist. Think about it. John the Baptist had made the claims about Jesus and his works. But it was the things that Jesus actually did, which were the greater attestation to who he was. If John had simply said that Jesus was the Messiah or said what Jesus could do, but Jesus hadn't backed that up, No one would have believed it. Again, lots of people have claimed to be the Messiah. Lots of people claim to hear from God. Some people even claim to be sinless. It's one thing to use your words to say who you are, but it's another thing to use your works to point to who you are. After the first sign that Jesus performs in this gospel, where he turns water into wine at a wedding feast, John chapter 2 verse 11 says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Jesus revealed his glory through that sign. We've seen him in this gospel so far, cure a child near death. In the following section, Following chapter, he'll feed multitudes. He heals the sick, gives sight to the blind, raises the dead. Yes, there are a few others who do miracles in the Bible. We see them from Moses, though he's empowered by God to do them. We see them from Elijah and Elisha, though again, they're enabled by God. And they pointed to God. And those people never claimed to be the promised savior of the world. Whereas Jesus had a ministry which was closely and intimately connected to God. And here he says that his miracles are a witness pointing to himself as a divine being. His entire ministry points to who he is. As Jesus says, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. We see his dominion over physical health, his dominion over nature, and his dominion over life and death. And greater things were to be seen. Certainly, one of the most striking attestations to his messianic identity, when looking at the works of Christ, has got to be his resurrection. Think about the facts that are agreed upon, even by secular historians. Jesus was crucified and then he died. Serious scholars agree that Jesus really did live and that the evidence really does point to him having been crucified by the Romans. There is no evidence ever of somebody surviving a Roman crucifixion. The Romans knew what they were doing. They knew when a person was dead. They knew the physical trauma that crucifixion inflicted on a person. The blood loss, the lack of oxygen. Jesus died. The tomb was empty. Again, there's no historical account which disputes this. In the Gospels, there is an allegation recorded that some suggested that the disciples stole the body. That still affirms that the tomb was empty. You have accounts of people who saw Jesus after the resurrection. This is never depicted as legend or myth. 1 Corinthians 15 concretely says that there were more than 500 witnesses. Of the disciples, their lives were forever changed. Of the 12, it's believed in church tradition that 11 of them, all but John, were martyred. You have the early conversion of Paul, who was hostile to Christianity, but then claimed to have had a life-changing experience by witnessing Jesus? Why would Paul go from being hostile to Christianity to the greatest missionary who ever lived, and someone else who ultimately gave his life for the gospel? All of those facts and more speak to the resurrection of Jesus. Others have claimed to be the Messiah, They're dead and gone. Jesus is the Messiah who is risen and lives. The tomb was empty. People saw him after he'd risen from the dead and died to defend that truth. And it is because he rose that we can trust that we too will be raised with Christ. Jesus works, testify to who he is. The third witness to Christ, and most importantly, God himself affirms the identity of Christ. Let's look again at verse 36 and take that into verse 37. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. been building up to this, been building up to God, pointing to Christ, and as the section continues where we'll be next week, is also in the Word of God, pointing to Christ. In this passage, throughout these verses in chapter 5, not just today, but over the last few weeks, everything points to the closeness of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus has said, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. But only, see, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Or again, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Or again, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You also have multiple instances in the Gospels where God attests to the divinity of Jesus and to his relationship with Jesus. We see this where Jesus is baptized in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'll focus on Mark 1, verses 10 and 11. Referring to Jesus being baptized, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You have the transfiguration where God speaks. Mark chapter 9 verse 2, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And all of these pieces of evidence fit together. Jesus claims God affirms him, and his miracles back that up. They point to his divinity. And again, as we'll see in the following section, a fourth witness to Jesus is the Old Testament. You have John the Baptist who came as a witness to the light. He died for claiming that. And as we've already discussed, so did the other disciples as well. Their lives testify to what they had seen. Jesus is who he says he is. In his commentary on John, quoting again from Richard Phillips, he says, There can be no greater cause for judgment than to reject God's own Son when he has presented himself to you. To turn your back on Jesus is to turn your back on life, which God freely gives with forgiveness of sin, only to those who believe on his beloved son. God's prophets witness to Christ. Jesus' divine miracles and ministry witness to Christ. And God himself witnesses to his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you keep living your life for worldly things or for, for you or just for the things that you want or the comforts that you want? Or do you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and then the need of Christ? That he is who he says he is. That he is the son of God. That he is the way and the only way to eternal life. And to worship him and walk with him. And live for him. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your goodness and grace. And I just continue to pray for our church, Lord, for our holiness and our pursuit of you in this difficult time. Lord, may you be near to us. Lord, I also do want to pray for Mark and Andrea getting married this week. And Lord, I I just want to pray again for your blessings on them, on this most sacred union of marriage Lord, and I pray that you would bless them with many happy, healthy, sanctifying years together. In Jesus' name, amen.